Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians on this first Sunday of 2022. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, full disclosure, as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you've been around Mission Road Bible Church for any amount of time, you might say, you might even look at some notes in your journal or in your Bible and say, wait, wait, Rick, you've, you've preached on this before, and you would be right. In fact, I think I've preached on this passage, this might be the fifth time in the last 10 years since I've been here. And full disclosure, it will likely not be the last. I think it is a pivotal text it won't be the same sermon, but it's certainly the same text. And I think it's worth us recalibrating our own thinking around this text because it is so central as to what is central about our faith. So this is the first Sunday of the year, and I think this passage really draws our attention just like a, a magnet for how we can put our perspective in the right place as we begin a fresh and a new year. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the first four verses, and we'll isolate our attention this morning on verses 3 and 4. Paul says, I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. And just a little context there, he's defending himself and he says, this is foolish. I wish I didn't have to do it. Just bear with me because you have questions. I need to answer them. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Four, if anyone comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Yesterday, as I mentioned, was the first day of 2022 which begins the first week of the year. We find ourselves meeting on the first Sunday of this year, this morning. And the first of the year is always a unique opportunity for recalibration, for resolutions, for reflection. In fact, this is the time of New Year's resolutions. And I, I, I got to admit, I, I've gone back and forth over the years by thinking that's a really good idea and that's a really bad idea. It's usually a really bad idea when I don't fulfill them. It's a really good idea if I do. So I make that decision usually in February if they were good or bad. But it is an interesting time where people, whether you do it or not, are in the mode of thinking about reset. One of the most consistent resolutions as I look through a list, several lists of uh, what people wanted to do in this new year was this idea of decluttering. Decluttering is exactly what it sounds like. You're dealing with clutter in your house and trying to declutter it. What happens is simple. Over time, things accumulate in your house that are unnecessary and unimportant and end up crowding out the things that are necessary and are important. Do I really have to explain decluttering to anyone? 
Well, I did a little reading on the process of decluttering and found a consistent theme in the websites that I, that I looked at. The process of your junk drawer getting cluttered, decluttered or, or a room or a garage or your whole house getting decluttered is typically a faster process than it came to be cluttered. Cluttering is a slow process. Decluttering is pretty abrupt and pretty dramatic. You add this, then that, then this other thing, then that other thing, and before you know, you have a cluttered space, and it happens slowly, and then you get overwhelmed, and you don't want to clean or declutter, and you get discouraged. It's from books I've read, right? Entire websites, entire books are devoted to decluttering your living spaces. I even found a a website on how to declutter your car. If, if you need to declutter your car, we might need to talk a little later. I think most of us know what living in a cluttered space is like. We've all have clutter in areas of, of, our, of our living spaces. But I really want to ask, have you ever thought about the fact that there's a possibility of having a cluttered spiritual life and that it might be important to declutter your spiritual thinking, to declutter your spiritual life. That is exactly what the text I read to you is about. Identifying the clutter in your life, decluttering it to, to reduce your faith down to what's essential. Paul is thinking in these terms in 2 Corinthians 11. He's aware that our hearts can become cluttered and lose focus on the Lord himself, lose focus on Jesus. You have a cluttered heart? Here's the, here's the challenge. Some of us would say yes and recognize that. What's very dangerous is if there is a cluttered sense of our affections and a cluttered sense of our loyalties in our heart, and, and we don't recognize it. And that is what Paul is addressing here in this text. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. It, so, uh, it sounds silly to even say, but we have to say it. It's the good news that he, the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came to the world to save sinners from the wrath of God, from eternal punishment, to establish peace with God, and a way to enjoy him forever. And yet the enemy of our souls, Satan, who is very alive and very well, would like us to think of Christianity as anything and everything but Christ. Oh, he'd love for us to think that it's behavior modification, it's turning over a new leaf, it's creating a new habit, it's changing things that we, we, we do, breaking old and bad habits. He would love for us to think that it's a social alternative to the world. He'd love for us to think that it's a movement to solve the social injustices on the planet. Satan would love for us to think that Christianity is really a moral minority or a moral majority to change governments. What is Christianity about? I want to take you on a very fast but brief tour just listen to these passages. You can write down the references if you want. We'll have them posted on the website tomorrow. But listen to the accent of the New Testament on Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 2.1, Paul says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech 
of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who has shown, who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As a pastor, this is always on my mind. Galatians 4.19, my children, Paul says, with whom I, again I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get to this in Ephesians chapter 4, but I can't resist just giving you a little preview. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 17, I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, that you live no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart, having become callous, given themselves over to every kind of sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. In other words, the curriculum for Christianity is the person of Christ. Indeed, if you have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Philippians 1.21, you know it well. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, I count those things as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We could go on and on. Colossians 1, 18, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And we've talked about the fact many times before that it doesn't say first place above everything. Jesus isn't first place above everything. He's not number one on our priority list. It says first place in everything. He's first place in number one, number two, number three, first place in our families, first place in our work, in our job, in our occupation, in our recreation. He is first place in everything he comes to bear. What do we talk about? 1 Peter 2, 9, when you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He is the curriculum of our conversation. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, grace and peace be multiplied to you, Peter says in first, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 
grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He's the final revelation in Hebrews 1. He's the one we fix our eyes on in Hebrews chapter 12 too. He's the eternal God himself in 1 John 5, 20. Here's the challenge. What I want you to do sometime, maybe this afternoon, just this will be a fun, maybe lunch challenge. Get your Bible out in the New Testament. We'll start there. And go beyond Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. It's too easy there. Go between Romans and Revelation. Just open anywhere. Drop your finger anywhere and start reading and see how long it takes you to run into a reference to Jesus. It won't be long. Christianity is about Christ. It's about Jesus. With that as a backdrop, it shouldn't surprise any of us that the Apostle Paul comes to the end of his defense in 2 Corinthians and says, I'm afraid that your mind will be distracted from Jesus. When Paul says he is afraid, that, that gets my attention. Paul wasn't afraid of anything. He, he was, in some measures, the most brave Christian that we've ever read of or seen. He proclaimed the gospel in the hostile synagogues, and that never turned out well for him. He went into a hostile environment and talked about Christ. He preached in open Gentile marketplaces. We see that happened, happening in Athens, especially on the Areopagus up on that hill. He evangelized before the intimidating council of Jerusalem that had the power to execute people for being a Christian. He spoke up for Christ at Lystra so badly that they took him out and left him in a ditch for dead after they beat him. He stood for the gospel before King Agrippa, before Festus, before Felix, even to the Roman guards who were holding him at sword point in jail. He preached and sang about Jesus. And I love how he's described in Acts chapter 17 when they come and knock on Jason's door looking for Paul and they said, where are these men, including Paul, who've upset the world? Don't you wish that was your reputation? You upset the world with Christ? His fearlessness cost him dearly and deeply. Look down the page at verse 23. Speaking of the false prophets, are they servants of Christ? Ha, huh, I speak as if insane. I'm more so. Is this your reputation? Is this your resume as a, as a believer? Far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent bobbing around out in the ocean in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food. This makes sense to us today. In cold and exposure. And apart from ex such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul's bravery would be so pronounced, it would cost him his life. And he would lay his head on an anvil and it would be severed by Nero. 
Paul was amazing, amazingly brave. Think about it from when he began his ministry, Rome was fully entrenched in heathenism. And by the time he died, a revival had started in the greatest city in the world in Rome, shaken by his preaching of Christ. In chapter 11, here of 2 Corinthians in verse 3, this brave apostle says, I'm afraid. That gets my attention. That has my attention. Afraid of what? Well, if you look at the end of verse 3, he's afraid that the minds of the Corinthians would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What was this fearless, apostle, audacious, missionary, bold, pastor, ferocious, theologian afraid of? He was afraid that the Corinthians' minds and ours would be cluttered. And in the midst of spiritual clutter, Jesus would lose the focus and attention that he deserves. You know the background pretty well. False teachers had infiltrated the Corinthian church, preaching a false gospel, talking about a false spirit, defining a false Jesus. And they were doing so, by the way, by attacking Paul himself personally and Paul's message. So he comes to the, this climax of his defense in chapter 11, and he gives a defense of his care for these precious saints. It is a tremendous theology here of pastoral care. It's a tremendous theology of parental care. It's a tremendous theology of caring about your friends and what their focus is in life. For this morning, I want to approach this more like a friend, more like a biblical counseling time that we can have with each other. I want us to ask some questions that Paul answers in this text and ask ourselves if we need to declutter some parts of our thinking before we begin into this new year. Let's ask five questions to declutter your faith. They'll be simple. They'll be quick. They come right out of this text. Five questions to declutter your faith. If you're going to declutter your junk drawer or your kitchen or your bedroom or the garage, great. Don't neglect decluttering your thinking or the things that elbow Jesus out of first place in your faith. Let's ask five questions. The first, have I been desensitized? Have I been desensitized? I get this from the, the very first statement that he, he gives us in chapter, in verse three, but I am afraid that... I'm afraid. In order to understand the force of this fear, you got to go back to verse two. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy for I betrothed you to one husband. This is the language of a father giving his daughter away so that to Christ, I might betroth you as a pure virgin. The imagery is of a father giving his daughter away. The priority was to keep her pure before the wedding. And Paul understood himself to be the spiritual father of the Corinthians and giving them to the bridegroom, not a bridegroom, but one to the bridegroom, namely to Christ. His goal was to have a relationship with the Corinthians, to have a relationship with God, to bring those two together and then to get out of the way so that they are connected to the Lord themselves. He's jealous. This is not sinful, regular human jealousy though. It's not motivated by envy, by self-interest by possessiveness. 
Paul was not like a jealous fiancé or husband, but like someone protecting a treasure for someone else. He was protecting them for their bridegroom, for Christ. He says, I'm jealous, but he also says, I'm fearful in verse 3. I'm afraid. Phobia. We know this word very well, right? We talk about phobias that we have. It's the word phobia. And the original uh, definition of this word is a little more striking than we typically think of in, in our vernacular. Phobia was used typically of scaring a horse, frightening a horse, deep, sudden, exacting fear, gripping fear, debilitating fear, a strong alarm. Also, you might be interested to know that in the Greek, fear is the first word in the sentence, which puts the accent on, afraid I am, almost a Yoda type of a sentence. Fearful I am. He was sensitive to the reality of being cluttered in faith. How do we know that? He was afraid. Did, do your emotions get involved in the, in the care and condition of your soul, of your kids' souls, of your spouse's soul, your friend's soul? Does it ever elicit fear, an emotional response? I'm afraid, I'm distracted, disoriented. Are you ever afraid that your soul or your heart has lost its emphasis? They've drifted from your first love that Christ does not have first place in everything? Are you ever afraid that Jesus has become a part of life and not the point of life? In other words, does it, does it animate your affections? The opposite of that is you're just desensitized. We just don't think about it. It doesn't bother us anymore. The question we're asking here is, are you, can you, will you be bothered by being cluttered and having things elbow Jesus out of first place. A lack of fear is a sure sign we've been desensitized to what's really important. Paul believed in the sovereignty of God. Paul was fearless. And yet here he says, my concern over the affections of the Corinthians, our affections, my concern over affections being dislodged from the Lord causes me consternation. It keeps me up at night. That's not a battle against his belief in the sovereignty of God. That's an expression of his love for these people and his love for spiritual health. So as we begin this year, have you been desensitized? Does it bother you when you drift? Do you know you've drifted? Do you sense that you're off course? Have you been desensitized? There's a second question that arises out of verse three. Have I been deceived? Have I been deceived? This is an incredible, incredible portion of scripture. Paul gives us an illustration. He says, I'm afraid for you. He gives us a little illustration. As the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, this epic illustration that functions in two dimensions. It makes the point he's making, but it also shows us what Paul believed about the Older Testament. It shows us what Paul believes about Genesis. Don't miss the fact that Paul takes the Genesis account of Adam and Eve and the serpent 
Literally. Seriously. Can I say it out loud? Paul believed in a talking serpent. Why? Because Genesis 3 says there was one. The supernatural nature of Scripture did not intimidate Paul. He took it at face value. And I would say this, if you ever have, if you ever need some help believing the truthfulness of Scripture, lean on Brother Paul here. He believed Genesis and took it at face value. He had, there's no footnote here. He says, well, of course, this is mythology and there was no real Adam and no real Eve. He just believed it. But he also believed what was happening there. The abnormality of a talking serpent, snake, was not too fantastical to him. If it was in Scripture, he took it as fact. What's the point here? Eve was deceived. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 tells us the same thing. Eve was taken by deception. Don Carson says, when Eve fell, it was not because she was battered into sinful submission by a wicked overlord, but because she was taken by cunning. The serpent deceived her. You know what the first question in the Bible is and who asked it? Satan said, has God really said? That's the first question in the Bible spoken by the devil himself. He's always trying to trick believers into following a self-centered, Christ-distancing faith. And the problem is that the enemy uses our dictionary, excuse me, our words with his dictionary. Sure, he'll talk about Jesus, but he'll redefine him. Sure, he'll talk about the Spirit, he'll redefine him. He'll talk about the gospel and redefine it, as we'll see in verse 4. He uses phraseology of, phraseologies of faith that we're very familiar with, but he defines them with self-interest, self-adulation, and flattery. He makes error seem reasonable. And the best way to do this is by making people feel good about themselves and bad about people who make them feel bad about themselves where the gospel meets them. This is the age-old problem, frankly, of liberalism. The emerging church, which is just liberalism in new clothes, by the way, it uses Christian words with non-biblical definitions. It's subtle. It's a good translation for this word, Satan deceives. It's, it's a word that, that, that means to, to trick by craftiness. Know this, his ways are never obvious to the unsuspecting. He's a trickster and he knows it. Can, can we just briefly look at that back in Genesis chapter 3? Very familiar territory. The serpent was more crafty, there he is, cunning, more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, there's the first question in the Bible, by the serpent. And I just, not only Paul, but Moses, who's a long time removed from this, this account, just tells us that this serpent shows up and starts talking to Eve and, 
No one raises their hand and says, wait, that's not normal. It happened, and he took it as fact. Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, it's just striking. She just talks back. She doesn't say, wait a minute. I've been talking to Adam, but this is weird. No, she just talks to him. We don't know what kind of relationship man had with the animals before the fall. Maybe this was normal. This wasn't normal from the standpoint of who she was talking to, though, because she wasn't talking to a serpent. Revelation tells us she was talking to Satan who possessed the serpent. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of, of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it from it or touch it or you will die. Interesting, she footnotes God because God didn't say anything about touching it. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what that is? That is casting suspicion on God's character. God's a jealous God who, um, in Satan's terms, not in God's terms, who doesn't want you to be like him. Actually, God wants us to be as much like him as we can be. He's using truth and spinning it in a way that was so deceptive. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. He deceived her. She thought she was getting something that he said she could have that wasn't possible. And then everybody asks, well, where was Adam? Here's the thing. Adam was standing right there. How do we know that? She took from the fruit of the tree, and she ate, and she gave also to her husband, what's the next two words? With her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Satan deceived her. How did he deceive her? By using theological concepts in unbiblical ways. See that? That's the deception. It's thinking Christian thoughts unbiblically or unbiblically qualified. Satan is a disguiser. He never comes as Satan. He came, came as a, a serpent. He comes as the angel of light. Look down at verses, back to 2 Corinthians. Down at verse 13, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles for Christ. There's the deception. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He never comes like the, the Hollywood movies say he does with a red face and with horns coming out of his head and with a pitchfork. Satan never looks like Satan. He wants to look like God. Satan never looks evil and bad. He wants to look good and inviting. That's why he deceives. Counterfeiters make their money look as much like the real as possible, and so does he. He deceives. He's the father of lies, John 8, 44. He distracts by putting attention on self rather than Christ. He distorts. He's a master eisegete in the scriptures. His main attack is by using God's word in a distorted, out-of-context, incomplete, augmented, and diminished way. He's a deceiver. 
So on this first Sunday of the year, I think it's, it's good for us to ask, have we been deceived? Now, you're tempted to say, well, I don't think I've been deceived. Of course you don't. How do we know if deception is creeping around in our cluttered spiritual minds? By constantly testing what we think against God's word. Is this the read your Bible more sermon? Of course it is. We have to stay in direct contact with Scripture. We have a functional bibliology. We should know what the Bible says and test our thoughts against it. So Paul says, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, you can't know what I'm talking about unless you believe the Bible, apply the Bible, and think the Bible can help you by what it says. Question number three, have I been distracted? He says, I'm afraid for you lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Then he comes back to the main part of his sentence. I'm, I'm afraid that your minds will be led astray. That's being distracted. Your mind will be led astray. You'll be thinking other thoughts rather than biblical ones. His fear is that the Corinthian believers would be led astray and distracted from the person of Christ. Now here's the, here's the kicker. They would be distracted from the person of Christ by what looked like Christian things. In this last phrase, Paul explains the target and ramifications of the godly jealousy he mentioned in verse 2. He mentions the attack point of Satan, and it's the mind. It's your thinking. Christianity is fundamentally a rational thinking religion. Sure, emotions are engaged, but it's mostly a, a rational Thinking man's religion. Why is that important? Because that's how Satan attacks us, by our thinking, that your mind, your thinking would be led astray, distracted, your thought processes. Your mind is the primary target of the assault of our enemy. The Corinthians have been led astray, corrupted, distracted by what verse 4 we'll see in a minute calls another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. In other words, they were thinking wrongly about biblical realities because they weren't thinking about biblical theology and biblical realities with biblical data and information. These terms show how crafty Satan is. There's not one angle of attack. His attack on you might be different than his attack on someone else because he will attack us where our thinking is weakest. Also where our thinking is least informed. And what he'll cause us to do is to look to Facebook or intuition, social media, what others think, or how we think. Have you ever heard about anyone say, my God would never be like X, Y, or Z? Well... You don't define God by your intuition. He defines himself by his word. That's why this word led astray is corrupted to make erroneous, inaccurate assumptions about Christianity. Have I been distracted from thinking ways that are not biblical about biblical realities? There's a fourth question. Have I been dislodged? Dislodged, separated, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind, your thinking will be led astray from what? 
from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. A little bit of a, a, a grammatical observation here. If you have a New American Standard, you'll notice that that there's some words at the end of that verse that are in italics. Of devotion is in italics, which means that the, the translators supplied that to help us understand what Paul meant. And, and, and they're right. But this is what's literally going on here in the Greek. He says that your minds will be led astray. I'm afraid your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity to Christ. The simplicity and the purity. Yes, it's about devotion. It's about a loyalty. It's about affection. But to Christ, purity, pureness, it's the same idea of being pure in a relationship. It's, it's actually used in sexual connotations of being a pure virgin, which is the context here in verses 2 and following. You'd be pure. Linsky writes, the picture is of a cloth that's laid out so smooth that no fold hides anything under it. Here, single-mindedness refers to Christ. The mind and all its thoughts are set solely and singularly upon him. Loyalty, devotion, love to him. There's no duplicity which secretly turns to another, end quote. Simplicity and purity go hand in glove. Simplicity is single-mindedness. Purity is without blemish. Holy and holy devoted to Christ. Holy, W-H-O-L, entirely and holy, purely devoted to Christ. There's no extras in the end of this verse. The entirety of our affections is supposed to be owned by the Lord himself. We can be dislodged from single-mindedness and from purity to Christ sometimes by good things, by, by even Christian things. We put the caboose in front of the, the engine. And Paul is saying, no, no, is your faith anchored in and on him? When you think about your faith, is it church? Is it your friends? Is it your care group? Is it your Bible reading? Is it your Bible study? All that's great, but those are pulled along by, by Christ himself, which again, you see the reference here to the resurrection. You can't be devoted to someone who's dead. You can't have a relationship with someone who's dead. And the context here indicates that Satan in his wicked craftiness aims to introduce duplicity and spiritual clutter into our thinking about Christ to dilute and defile our thoughts of him and about him and for him. Again, he would love for us to think of our faith as Behavior modification is doing certain things and not doing other things, is talking a certain way and using certain words and not using other certain words. And Paul says, no, no, your, your faith is in him, him. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, see the personal nature of that? He is to be accursed. 
Jesus understood this. We talk about this week in and week out in our celebration of the Lord's Supper, of the Lord's Table of Communion. He says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus knew that we would shift and be distracted in our, in our focus, that, that our, our minds would be dislodged from him. And so the communion exercise that we go through is to make sure that we're constantly being pulled back to him to remember him. This was the great era of the Ephesian church in Revelation 2. They lost their first love. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus, that we might know God. Have you been dislodged? Oh, you were attached to Christ at one point, but things can bump you off that focus. And then he summarizes everything by... Verse 4 tells us exactly what he's saying. Have I been disoriented? To become disoriented is to lose focus, which is supposed to orient you. That's what it means to dis, be disoriented. For if someone comes, if one comes and does this, here it comes, preaches another Jesus. What does that mean? A Jesus who's not the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. A Jesus who is defined by intuition, by feelings, by my Jesus would never, or my Jesus would always. And it's different than the one defined by the scriptures. Another Jesus. We need to make sure that our Jesus is the biblical one. If anyone preaches another, look at the end of the verse, by the way. He says, you bear this beautifully. He says, you are too susceptible. You're too easy to believe these things. Don't be this way whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit. What is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. And just a little footnote, the month of January we're going to be studying the person and work of the Holy Spirit, which I hope will help us on these things so that we're not looking at a different or an unbiblical spirit. But listen to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one is speaking by the Spirit of God who says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, your view of Jesus is the main indicator whether you have a relationship with the true Spirit of God or not. We'll study in our upcoming series, John 14 and John 16, which says that the Spirit of God's primary ministry in this world, in this way, in this life right now, is to point rightly to Jesus. Let me say it again. Satan's use protocol is to use our theological words and concepts and his dictionary for defining them. Paul's point is that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can lead a person to know and confess and be affectionate toward the Lord Jesus. He says, if, if anyone talks about the Spirit of God and the focus is the Spirit of God, the focus is the spiritual gifts, the focus is anything but Jesus, you know it's not the real Spirit of God. 
Then he ends it by saying, a different gospel, any doctrine of salvation that was out of sync with Paul's message of justification by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Paul is jealous about this. Paul is concerned about this. So, so we begin a new year. Uh, let, let me ask, are, have, have you been desensitized? Do you care? Have you been deceived? Do, do, do you know? Have you been distracted? Can you tell? Have you been dislodged? Do you feel and know when you don't have that connection with the Lord himself? Have you been disoriented? Are you defining your faith biblically? Look, my prayer for us all this year is that we, when we come to 2023, we have a, a faith that's more anchored on the Lord himself and always defined by the Bible and the Bible alone. Not by others, not by conspiracy theories, not by social media, not by intuition and instinct, but by Scripture. And the way we'll do that is just be a next church verse. We're just going to keep studying through God's Word and see what He tells us and believe it. Even if it tells us a snake talked. Amen? Will you believe and take God's word at face value? God doesn't have a speech impediment. What he said, he said the way he wanted to say it. What he said, he gave as truth, not myth. Paul believed that, and so should we. So as one of your pastors and one of your elders, let me join them in saying, Dear Mission Road, we are afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds might be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. If it's not to him, you will be desensitized, deceived, distracted, dislodged, disoriented, not just in big categories, but moment by moment in daily decisions. Let's be those who point each other back to him. And in a week, a month, a year, we can look back at this verse and say there's traction. And we can look back at this verse and say, we need to excel still more, right? I trust that he is the object of your faith. That you have faith in him, not faith in faith. To a Christian, Nothing is more attractive than Jesus. To a true Christian, nothing is more precious than Jesus. To a true Christian, nothing is more comforting and hopeful than Jesus. So be careful that you don't get knocked off your grip on him. If you know him, this makes sense to us. If you don't, we'd love to introduce you to him today. Our prayer room will be open. John Rosenbaum, one of our elders, will be over there in just a moment. He, he, any of us would love to talk to you about starting the year off right with Christ. Not, not, not Christianity, that comes afterwards, with, with Christ himself. He is our Savior 
He is our Lord, therefore he's our focus. Father, give us the grace to see if our faith is cluttered and needs decluttering so that nothing is left except our Savior. Make us sensitive, discerning, reflective enough to know where to dial in our focus on spiritual growth, on spiritual health. And I pray that this year is our best yet as we seek to honor, serve, and love him who died for our sins, who rose from the grave, who intercedes for us right now in ways that we don't ever understand or deserve. Have first place in everything. Pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.